Good morning. That song, uh, You Are the Mighty uh, King, is one of my favorite praise songs. And one of my recollections of the song is that we sang it uh, in the service, our dedication and commissioning service of the Miyakes before they went to Japan. And uh, Eddie Espinosa wrote it. I, and I saw his uh, sister do the lead. Uh, she was the lead in uh, uh, the Los Angeles version of Wicked. So the Espinosa family is very talented. Let's turn together to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Now we're going to be studying John chapter 9 in the future as we are going through the gospel according to John. We're going to take a brief look at it this morning. At least it's going to be one of the things we look at. I'll read the first three verses. John chapter 9. Let's rise for the reading of God's word. John 9, 1, 2, and 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now this is speaking of Jesus passing by this man. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words spoken by our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that, that we will come to a fuller and richer understanding of, of what these three verses mean. Thank you, Father. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations that are upon my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This morning we'll be taking a look at the advantage of disadvantages. The advantage of disadvantages. Or the blessings of special needs. The blessings of special needs. Let me first define the word advantage. This is a web definition I think is really good. The word advantage means it's a condition or circumstance that puts one in a favorable or superior position. That's advantage. A condition or circumstance that puts one in a favorable or superior position. Now let's take a look at the word disadvantage. Disadvantage is unfavorable circumstance or condition that reduces the chances of success or effectiveness. Disadvantage. An unfavorable circumstance or condition that reduces the chances of success or effectiveness. You know, history is filled with disadvantaged people with special needs who did remarkable things with their lives. In some cases, their disadvantage became an advantage to them. Let me introduce you to Ludwig van Beethoven. Now, Ludwig van Beethoven wrote music while he was deaf. In about the year 1800, he discovered that he was slowly losing his hearing. By 1820, or 20 years thereafter, he was almost totally deaf, and Beethoven composed some of his greatest works. These include the last five piano sonatas, the Ninth Symphony with its uh, choral finale, and the last five string quartets. That's quite an accomplishment for a man who could barely hear, who had a special needs. It's postulated that the slow onset of his deafness motivated him to write and gave him the ability to continue to write after deafness beset him. And then he appreciated music even more so after he couldn't hear any longer. A disadvantage turning into an advantage. This morning, we're going to take a look at the blessings or advantages of those with special needs or disadvantages. You know, I shared a message, this message, or at least most of this message, 
at Mount Hermon this past June. And after sharing the message, a couple of our church members came up to me and said, you know, you really should share this message at church because I've never shared it at Evergreen SGV before. And so I thought, well, I may as well do it while uh, it's still fresh in my heart and mind. First of all, people with special needs are a part of God's creation for his glory. People with special needs are a part of God's creation for his glory. You know, those born with special needs are created by God. Turn to Exodus chapter 4. This is God calling Moses into the ministry that he's going to have for approximately 40 years as he's going to deliver the people of Israel out of bondage. Now Moses is making a series of excuses as to why he's not the guy to do it. Look at verse 11. This is God's response to Moses with Moses. Look, I'm slow at speech. I don't speak very well. You somebody else. And this is what God says to him. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? And, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Very clear in the scriptures here. Everyone is part of God's creation, even if they were born blind or born deaf. Everybody born with a special need is still nonetheless a part of God's wonderful creation. People with special needs are wonderfully and beautifully made. In 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, Paul wrote to Timothy, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Now here the context is, is people are saying, well, there's certain kinds of meat you shouldn't eat. Um, uh, maybe you shouldn't be getting married. Is marriage really an institution of God? So this is all going on in the church at Ephesus. And so Paul writes to Timothy, everything created by God is good. Now, there's a specific context, but the general teaching is everything created by God is good. See, it's our idea of wonderfully and beautifully made that is different from God's idea. Our idea of being wonderfully and beautifully made is perfection. Think about it. The more perfect something is, the more beautifully and wonderfully made it is. And that's just really a misconception in Scripture. Those who develop postnatal special needs are also part of God's creation. In Psalm 145, 9, it says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Not just some of His works. Not just the works that, 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 that are never, never touched by some sort of disability or some sort of problem. But all His works are good. Disabilities are not caused by God, even though God is sovereign over them. You know, when Job suffered, it was Satan who caused the suffering, even though God permitted it. And this is what Job had to say about it. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even through the midst of his trials, even through the midst of the physical disabilities that he endured, he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's take a moment and look at the why of special needs. Why special needs? Special needs happen in various forms. They can be the product of genetics in the womb. They can be the result of a tragic or regrettable accident. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata, she was just a teenager, dove into a shallow body of water and came out a quadriplegic. A regrettable and tragic accident. They can be the byproduct of an infectious disease they can be the result of degenerative effects 
of old age. And they can affect any part of the mind or any part of the body. In the United States, in which, and this is a country that's got incredible medical innovations and tremendous technology, roughly 20% of its citizens live with a disability. Think about that. One in five in America live with a disability. At first I thought, that's a kind of a high number. And then I thought about where I live. I live in Atherton. It's a retirement community. And before too long, almost everyone there, if they live to a ripe old age, is using a walker, a cane, uh, a scooter, or a wheelchair. The place is just filled with people, loving, wonderful people, who have disabilities. And with a grain of America, that number is probably going to increase. In John chapter 9, part of which I read this morning, 1 to 23, it's an account about a man who was blind from birth. Now the disciples, as I read this morning, asked Jesus if this man's blindness was the result of his sin or the sin of his parents. See, they look for the cause of his blindness and not the why of his disability. Jesus revisits the fact that the sovereign God of the universe is sovereign over every disability and has a good design for every one of his children. The decisive explanation for this blindness is not found in looking for its cause, or not even looking at the blindness itself, but by looking for its purpose. Then he tells them where to look. Look for an explanation. The blind man's special need meets our sovereign God in his purposes. Look what it says in verse 3, John 9, 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God may be displayed in him and through him. The explanation is not bound in the blindness itself or the cause of the blindness, but rather in his future purposes by giving glory to God. The meaning of Jesus in John 9, 3 is not obscure. He is saying to the disciples, don't fixate on the cause or explanation of the special need. Don't just look at the actual nature of the disability. Don't focus on the futility or the absurdity or the chaos or the meaningless of a special need. Instead, look at the purposes and plans of God. There is no special need. There is no suffering outside of God's purposes. Healings occur so that God might be glorified. Non-healings occur so that God might be glorified. For Jesus, blindness from birth is sufficiently explained by saying, God intends to display some of his glory to this blindness. And in that instance, the man was eventually healed. Glory be to God. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, of course, the man was healed. Blind from birth, and then he's healed. Of course, God gets glory. And of course, we can see the purpose of the man's blindness, that the power and glory of God might be displayed. What about afterbirth? What about people who don't get healed? How is God glorified there? How is God glorified when I have been praying for myself or my children about something, uh, uh, some sort of affliction, and they're not healed? How's God glorified through that? 
Well, the Apostle Paul had some sort of thorn in the flesh, some sort of disability, some sort of ailment. And it says in 2 Corinthians that he cried out three times for the thorn to be removed. And this is what the Apostle Paul learned, verse 9. Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, what was Jesus saying? I will put my power on display, not by healing you, but by sustaining you with a thorn still in your flesh. In other words, healing displays the works of, of God in John 9, whereas the sustaining grace is displayed in the works of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What's common in the two cases? What's common is the supreme value of the glory of God the supreme value of the glory of God. The healing from blindness is to the glory of God. The thorn in the flesh is to the glory of God as God continued to sustain the Apostle Paul. Special needs and suffering in general can only have ultimate meaning in relation to the glory of God for his name's sake. Johnny Erickson Tata, herself the quadriplegic, once observed, Our Savior chose to flash his credentials as Messiah through ministry to disabled people. A disability magnifies God's grace. We in our wheelchairs get to prove how great and how trustworthy God is. That could only be spoken to someone who, by someone who's a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair for her entire life for it to have the kind of meaning that it does. Secondly, people with special needs can contribute to the greater good. People with special needs can contribute to the greater good. You know, people who have a disability, people who have any special need can richly benefit the community, especially the community of faith. Turn to 2 Kings 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. I'm not going to go through or read it, but this is where the account is found. I'd like you to sort of look along with me. The heroes of this particular account in chapter 7 of 7 Kings are four disabled men. They are outcasts and have been marginalized by the society. Their physical condition was some sort of skin disease, probably leprosy. And so they're cast out of the community. The king of Aram has laid siege to Samaria. And the people in the city cannot leave the city, cannot go get food. And so that's the purpose of a siege, right? So they lay siege, this vast army lays siege on the, on the city of Samaria, and the people began to starve to death. Now God somehow supernaturally causes the Aramean army to hear the sound of an approaching army. And so they flee, leaving everything behind. But the people in the city don't know this, and they're starving to death. Except these four guys who cast outside of the city. And they decide, well, look, we got two choices here. We can stay here and starve to death like everybody else, or we could go and surrender to the Arameans. And they'll do one of two things. They either kill us, which puts us out of our misery, or two, they'll take us prisoners and feed us. So they decide on the second option, and they go to the, to the campsite of the Aramean army. 
And what do they find? Totally vacated. All the stuff is there, but the people have vacated. And so they're able to eat to their full. They're able to round up all these supplies to provide for themselves. And then they have a decision to make. Do we just keep this to ourselves or do we tell the people in the city? And you can read what happens there and the rationale behind it all. But they go back to the city and tell them, hey, the Arameans have fled and the city is saved. And there's an interesting story there too. All right. But the idea is, here's these four marginalized men because of their special needs who benefit the community. People with special needs can contribute to the greater good. Uh, two, two years ago, or a year before this past Mount Hermon, my granddaughter Kayla, who's in college, went to the Mount Hermon camp, uh, the Gems Mount Hermon college camp. And one of the unique things about the college camp is that the college camp is held in conjunction with the special needs camp. And so there's a blending of the college camp and the special needs camp. And it's a very rich experience. And this idea of how special needs people can benefit the community is seen played out each time there's a college camp, special needs camp, uh, joint camp. So I asked Kayla if she'd come and just share her experience being in the camp interacting with the special needs camp. Hi, my name is Kayla Asaoka, and I am Pastor Corey's favorite oldest grandchild. <laughs> it is my privilege to share about what God taught me at college camp last year. Before college camp even started, I was most excited about sharing the campus with special camp because a lot of my college friends who went to college camp hyped me up and told me that being with special camp was going to be the highlight of the, of the time. They were so right, and let me tell you why. Meet Mariko. She's the one who's holding the shirt in the middle. She is everybody's friend. She's full of joy, attentive to every detail. She loves people, and she has a knack for remembering everybody's name. The Lord used Mariko to teach me two important lessons. The first lesson I call, are you guys friends? When I arrived at camp, I was the only college student who wasn't matched up with a special camper. But by God's design, I was placed with Mariko and a girl that I already knew. When the first time the three of us met, Mariko asked us, are you guys friends? We both looked at each other and said, yes. But deep down in my heart, we were not friends. I remember back at inner high camp, she was part of a clique that I did not like. They were exclusive and made me feel lonely at times. So, because she was a part of this clique, I had formed judgments and preconceived notions about who she was and what she was like. I did not want to be her friend. Are you guys friends? Mariko repeatedly asked us throughout the week. Through our time serving Mariko, and even being in a small group together, I quickly realized that my friend was not, how I perceived, was not how I perceived her to be at all. She was kind, very engaging with Mariko and other special campers. And because we were in the same small group together, I, I quickly realized that we shared a lot of the same experiences. We also got to pray and encourage each other in the Lord. As the week went on, when Mariko asked us if we were friends, I could honestly say yes. The second lesson I call, are you still my friend? Dinner was always Mariko time. At dinner, we would sit with her and we would chat with her and help her eat her meal. But I remember one time, 
Mariko did not, she did not want to eat her food, and so she pushed her plate, and a lot of the food went onto the table. Her aide, who was there with us, was like trying to calm her down, was trying to talk to her, and repeatedly asked her to finish her food, but Mariko continued to push it away, and she just continued to spill more and more of her plate. The aide finally took her outside and tried to talk to her and calm her down, and then when she came back, um, she sat down, and with an ashamed look on her face, she turned to me and asked, Kayla, are you still my friend? This question made me really sad, and I began to wonder why she had asked me this. Perhaps it was because of experiences in the past where people rejected her because of her disability. Maybe it was because she thought people's love for her was conditional and dependent on her ability to behave. Maybe she was afraid that people would fall out of a friendship because of her inabilities and shortcomings. Kayla, are you still my friend? I replied, yes, of course I am still your friend. I learned that our love and acceptance of others should not be conditional, withheld because of past hurt, misunderstandings, or misperceptions, or not given because of shortcomings or disabilities. And I'm glad that the Lord used the college and special camp communities to teach me these important lessons. Thank you. Isn't that a wonderful example of how someone with special needs can benefit for the greater or contribute to the greater good? Incredible. And there's story after story after story like that from special camp, where the campers, those with special needs, really contributed to the college camp. And we feel like that's one of the reasons why the college camp does as well as it does is because of the presence of those with special needs. And then finally, people with special needs can enable others to glorify God. People with special needs can enable others to bring God glory. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is the story of Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan and the grandson of King Saul. <clears throat> he became disabled when a nurse fell on him while he, she held him in his arms, and she was fleeing after the death of Saul and Jonathan. Turn to 2 Samuel 4.4. 4. So turn, keep your finger. In, the reason why you're in chapter 9 is just so you see where the account is. In 4.4, 4, it just describes how Mephibosheth got injured. Verse 4, now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jeriel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Now we don't know exactly the cause or the reason that his uh, leg never recovered, but he was crippled for the rest of his life. Now when David became king, he made inquiries as to whether anyone was left from the house of Saul to whom he could show kindness for his friend Jonathan's sake. If you read the account between Jonathan and David, you see that at one point Jonathan comes to David and says, you know, when I'm gone, when my father's gone, would you please show kindness to our, our lineage, to our household? Because in the past, what a king would do when, when uh, he would take over a realm is he would get rid of the former lineage so that there'll be no challengers. But rather, Jonathan asked David, would you please show kindness? You don't have to, but please show kindness toward our family. When David found Mephibosheth, 
He did not single him out for his disability. You know, back in that particular day, if you had a disability like that, you were reduced to begging for a living. He simply wanted to do what Jonathan asked him to do. So when David discovered Mephibosheth's disability, he did not recoil from honoring him. In fact, he did to him exactly what he would have done if Mephibosheth had been a powerful warrior in the kingdom. He welcomed him to his table, gave him Saul's land, and provided servants to farm it for him. The story becomes a powerful metaphor for the kingdom of God, where abled and disabled people sit together side by side as equals at the feast of the king's table. And one of the uh, blessings of special camp to main camp where I was is that on Thursday, uh, they, uh, they come and join the main campers for dinner in the dining hall. And the kids, the little, the uh, junior hires, the people in day, kids in day camp go to the field and have a picnic to create room for the special campers and all the staff that serves them. And it's a wonderful time where you get to dine together. And a couple of these special campers have been there as long as I've been a pastor of this church. They've been there. Some of them have been going to that camp for 40 years. They're in their 50s now. We have a couple of kids who grew up at Evergreen there, and they've been going there for, well, since they were kids, and I got to see them there. What we see in the story of Mephibosheth is that Jonathan's son allowed David to glorify God through his actions toward him. In the kingdom of God, able and disabled people sit together as equals at the feasting table. So Mephibosheth created an environment in which David could bring glory to God and where David himself was able to grow in faith and works. Let me conclude by sharing you the story of Patrick. Some of you know this story and some of you just know parts of the story. Some of you don't know the story at all. Rain and Shirley, Rain, my wife, and Shirley Ogata, her sister, had a brother named Patrick, who was in a horrible automobile accident in 1982. Every time I pass that intersection, there's two intersections, there are two places on the freeway that when I pass, I have a, I have a thought that almost always occurs. One, when I pass the Baldwin Avenue off-ramp off the 10th, because this is where Patrick's accident happened, and the other one is at the 60 and the 57 junction, and that's where Art and Sharon Yokoi perished. Those are the two places that I have this weird feeling whenever I pass it. And I pass them frequently. Well, Patrick had severe brain trauma. He was in a coma for about three months. He spent over a year in the hospital, Daniel Freeman Hospital in Inglewood. I recall visiting him about twice a week to exercise him at Daniel Freeman Hospital in Inglewood. It was not a pleasant experience for me. To be quite frank, I dreaded it because I had to drive in traffic to get to Daniel Freeman. I went down the 110 and then I went through surface streets to get there because going the 405 or other routes was just poss was impossible. I had to fill my mind with distractions. So I used to count the number of fried chicken outlets along the various routes to the hospital. Don't ask me why I did that, I just did that. I kept playing games with my mind because I wasn't looking forward to going to the hospital. By the way, there are 27 fried chicken stores between the 110 and Daniel Freeman via different routes. 
We built an addition to the house and Patrick came to live with us in 1984. It was my idea to have him live with us rather than live in a Veterans Administration home uh, for the remainder of his life. So I said that because I wanted our church family to know that this wasn't cast upon me. This is something I welcomed and this was actually my idea. Rain kept telling me, are you sure you want to do this? And I just have a fierce loyalty for family, including church family. Boy, the first three years, well, especially the first year, but the first three years were rough. The first year was rugged. I was his principal caregiver since I was the only male in the household. And my kids were small. The picture you see there, the little girl there, is Bethany. Initially, I had to help him with everything until he learned in the new environment. So everything he learned in vocational and occupational therapy, he had to relearn in our household, and we didn't have a therapist with us. I helped him after he went to the bathroom. I helped him to shower. I cleaned up after he had accidents in the middle of the night. I remember thinking during the course of that first year, this is taking years off the end of my life. I remember thinking that frequently. The stress and the strain of taking care of him is going to, I'm going to pay that dividend at the end of my life by reduced number of years living. I don't think that's true, but that's what I thought. I exercised him regularly to supplement his physical therapy. Eventually, uh, insurance ran out and he didn't get physical therapy except what I gave him, and then we eventually hired a worker to help for six hours a day. He was confined to a wheelchair, and he, but he could also use a walker. Everything in our life took longer. Getting in the car, getting out of the car. Walking anywhere since he was either using a walker or a wheelchair. By the way, Patrick was great through this whole ordeal. He was kind. He used to tell me things like, you should rest, you look tired. You know? And then at times you think the unthinkable. There are moments when I thought it would have been better if he had died in the accident. There are other moments when I wished he were dead. The reason why I never shared this before is it's too ashamed to share it. You know, you have those thoughts. Some of you have had thoughts like that. Maybe not about a brother-in-law or a, maybe about a parent that you're taking care of now. Or some scenario where you think, I'm really ashamed of the things that I think. That, beloved, is sin. And we are all sinners. Just don't have the graciousness and the mercy that Jesus did at those moments in my life. But I sure desired it. After the first few years, however, he just became a part of our family, and we adjusted with the help of his siblings and their spouses who were always extremely supportive. Patrick passed away on February 23, 1993. He lived 10 more years. Then after one Mount Hermon, this was after his death, our family spent time together on Sunday and went on a worship walk. Our family's been doing this for years. We go to Mount Hermon, we don't come home on Saturday. We wait until Sunday. And we gather someplace on Sunday, and it just is my family of five. We would worship together, and we would share what God had taught us at Mount Hermon. That was our worship experience. This one time we went to this real nice place, and it had a hiking trail. You went this way, and I think it was almost five miles. You went this way, and it was about a mile and a half. Since I was the planner of the worship experience, we went this way a mile and a half. 
If it was rain, we would have probably walked five miles. Well, I remember we were walking and we were sharing experience and we stopped at this, at this intersection where, where, two, where two paths crossed and we stopped right there at the intersection. And one of my daughters shared about Uncle Pat and how difficult it was taking care of him. These are my daughters and they were young. And I remember that was a very poignant moment in the life of our family because then we all shared what life was like with and then now without Uncle Pat. If I had to do it all over again, I would. But that was a, when we thank God for his presence, and then she shared how much she missed him. She used to sit in the room with him and listen to Carpenter albums for an hour. Some of you don't even know, it. now it's not building stuff, it's a group that were called the Carpenters. Right. Everyone chimed in their own story. And it was a mixture, always a mixture of difficulty with blessing, struggles with victory. I confessed my sin and mixed emotions about our season with Uncle Pat. We all realize that Uncle Pat helped us become more like Jesus and what a blessing he really was to us, even though it was so hard. It was a defining moment for our family of five. You know, beloved, every family has their defining moments. Come, could come at a death of a loved one. Could come when, when all of a sudden one of the parents or both become infirmed or a little bit more feeble because of old age. Could, become, could be a, a defining moment after someone in the family experiences a divorce or contracts an illness or a disease. And you have these defining moments in the life of your family. How are you gonna respond to those defining moments? Tremendous difficulty in a marriage, that's a defining moment. How you handle it is extremely, extremely important. Even if we stumble around a bit as we try to figure out what God's will is for us. Do you have a defining moment happening in your life right now? Is there a special need that has arisen in your family or amongst a family member? Patrick's special needs were a part of God's creation for God's glory. Patrick's special need contributed to the greater good of our family. No doubt about that. Patrick's special need enabled his family to glorify God because they responded so very well to every circumstance we were confronted with. Do you have a Patrick in your life? Do you have a person with special needs in your life? They're there for a purpose. It's not the special need itself. It's not even the cause of the special need. It's God's purpose in it. And when we discover God's purpose in it, that's when we say all glory goes to God because we are someplace now that we wouldn't have been if this didn't happen in our lives. That's life living in the kingdom of God. We are so blessed. We are so blessed because any trial, any special need, anything like that that confronts us, even though we may stumble and falter as we are confronted by it, and there is glory at the end of it.
glory to God. And when God gets glorified, that means good things has happened with us too. And praise be to God for that. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good and merciful, even though we don't understand it. Father, sometimes we are, are lost in things like self-pity. We sometimes are even involved in self-condemnation when we don't need to be. We are very human, Lord, and you created us that way. And so we have these, these unreliable responses, sometimes these irrational responses to things that, that just befuddle us. We want to take care of somebody, yet it's so difficult. Why are we torn? Well, Lord, thank you that ultimately you have a purpose in all these things. As all these things are occurring for your name's sake, and when we understand that and when we grasp it, Father, everything looks and becomes so very different. Thank you for this, Father. I pray you bless our church family. Lord, right now, there are those who are going through some really difficult times. Father, I pray that you will meet them at their point of need. That, Father, you'll help each one to understand what it means for, to work, to strive toward your supreme glory and not just our selfish needs. Father, I pray that you help every person know how to take care of themselves properly. But, Lord, help us to focus our eyes on not what is, but what will become, what is to be. And Father, not for our sake, but for your name's sake. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Continue to pray. And if you have a prayer request this morning, if there's a need in your life that you just like the Lord to bless and watch over, prayer ministry will be on the window side of the sanctuary. They would love to pray with you this morning. Father, bless the time of prayer as we worship you. And even after the benediction, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.